Before we begin this week's episode, it's important that I tell you, I only took body movement one. I've never taken body movement two. It's jazz sax this week on Why Do You Know That? Welcome to Why Do You Know That? The party podcast that wants to know why you know so much about a very specific topic. I'm Nadia Osman. I'm Steve Slaga. Hi, Steve. Hi, Nadia. We're here again under quarantine with the COVID-19 pandemic raging across the world. But don't worry, because we're safely inside recording yet another wonderful pod for all of our fans. What have you been getting into? Well, unfortunately... Um, one of our potential fans might might no longer may no longer be able to listen. Um, the man who broke into my apartment in January has oh, been yeah. has been arrested. Um, <gasps> wow! I have to assume he was a fan of the podcast because you'll remember he stole a microphone. <laughs> this, yeah. Well, he stole, did he steal the bag of mics? Oh yes, that's right. He stole all the microphones, but <laughs> that was all, all he of took. Them. <laughs> yeah. Were you uh, no, he all- by Marin? Uh, yes. And then he oh, left man. a he left a FYC screener of season three of Glow. Um and only I mean, took nice. microphones. Yeah. That's nice, but it it is, you know, that is evidence. So Yeah. He kind of wanted he, to get caught, it sounds like. He, either that or he really wanted my vote for a SAG award. Mm, either right. either way. We'll have to have him on and see what he has to say about it. But yeah, the guy was uh, the guy was arrested. Wow. Let's not forget he, uh, he also took your roommate's salt lamp. Yes, I shared on Facebook like another post about this guy and was like, "Hey, he tried to break in another place. Be careful, everyone!" And uh, then people on Facebook called the police because they saw him and he got arrested. But the police were like, "We can't do anything because." We don't have we need like a a report number, an incident number to associate with this guy in order to hold him. So they came to my house to like for my information about the burglary. And the officer's name was Officer Corona. Shut the hell up. Come on. So <laughs> come on I mean, with this. And that's I not know. that's not me saying that to you. That's saying that to that that's me saying that to the world. Yeah. <laughs> why why is the world sending us right that right now? Yeah. We don't need it. No. So uh I mean, is he a is he a hero or is he a, a part of the virus? Who really knows? But I it, wonder if I'll have to go to court. <laughs> it almost feels uh, improvised, almost as if you know, the way you might in music. The way you might be yeah. like, the way things just kind of go in, in any direction. Yeah. And, and there's a musicality to it. I think that's as good of a seg as we're going to get. That's a seg alert going off. What a segue. I'm going to bring in our guest. Uh, you know him from the podcast Doughboys and how did this get played? Please welcome Nick Weiger. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm sorry I'm sorry that you got burglarized, Steve, but I'm glad it's been resolved. Oh, thank d- d- you. Yeah, I'm glad you have some degree of closure. Thank I know that you. That's, I mean, that's you could have d- you could have done more to catch him, but uh, you know, bygones <laughs> are bygones. I guess at this point I should just come clean that I was actually harboring him. Oh, uh, so God damn it. Yeah, I was actively 
counterproductive from your POV. Uh, that that was that's on me. That was probably the wrong move. Yeah, uh, but well, under the bridge. <laughs> Great, thank you. Uh, so, just yeah, like I'm, the I'm Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> just like the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I, were you guys, are you guys into the Chili Peppers? I was I was very much into them in like middle school, and then I completely dropped off. I think post like Blood Sugar Sex Magic, I have no idea what they were up to except for the the hits I heard on the radio. I have a very yeah, similar no, experience. That's all I know. Well, because I also grew up in Southern California, so uh, in right. Orange County, so K Rock is constantly playing Red Hot Chili Peppers. So basically, middle school when California Cation came out. And then after that, no idea, no idea what they've been up to. I, I wish them California, nothing but the best. Yeah, Cal- I mean, after grunge, California had a big run where it was kind of like at the the forefront of. And I know Red Hot Chili Peppers was contemporaneous with with grunge, but it was kind of at the forefront of of a few different music trends. You know, it was uh, a, the Chili Peppers are one of them, but I, I and you know. Uh, uh, Stone Devil Pilots, R.I.P. Wyland, mm-hmm. but the but the but then the the ska punk phase, and you know, and and that I, I'd be I'd encompass bands as 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 divergent as, uh, you know, I'm, there's both ska punk and then ska and punk separately, so it encompasses like No Doubt and Real Big Fish, but also like you know, um, Blink-182, and then after that era, or Sublime, and then after that era, you had the new metal era, and so many of these new metal bands all came from California. So it, it was a, yeah, and, and maybe two not, like, not great eras of music <laughs> that California is <laughs> responsible for. Did we? <laughs> but, but wait, definitely. are Limp Biscuit? are they from here? Limp Biscuit is not from here, but a okay. lot of the new metal bands are. Uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the um uh corn is from from Sacramento um oh i didn't know that. uh yeah i'm trying to think of the other ones i don't i don't can't remember if deftones is from here but there's a there's a bunch of these bands that are from california uh we are we, <laughs> uh, See, Nadia, the pacific your northwest native land <laughs> um you know who uh this is how i'm going to tie this all back together here Fred Durst of Limp Bizkit, also a big fan of jazz, hosts a jazz night at a jazz club in Los That's Angeles. Right. That's it's like right. I've heard about $40, that. so I haven't been to it, but I'm so intrigued. Anyway, so, okay, so jazz yeah. saxophone, Nick. Why do you know that? Well, I mean, the, the I played saxophone. I played woodwinds. I was a, I was a multiple woodwind kid. That was basically how I spent my my most of my teenage years. Uh, I started playing clarinet at the age of eight, and then I I progressed to saxophone was the next instrument I took up, and then after that I took up bassoon. I dabbled with a little bit of flute, but I never really reached a level of proficiency with that. Uh, but I was you know legit good in high school terms at both saxophone and bassoon. However, I just basically at, at the age of eighteen, I just kind of made the decision I'm just not going to do this anymore. I and, and it wasn't the point where I. <laughs> I could have like there was a there's a world where I could have gotten I could have been like you know what I'm gonna try to be a professional bassoonist I'm gonna be a guy who fucking who fucking plays you know in the orchestra pit at musicals or I can you know maybe I'll get in a, a I'll be in the fucking San Francisco Symphony or something when one of those chairs opens up when somebody dies maybe that's that will be my life path but I just saw 
I kind of basically a lot of it was that I saw how the people who were giving me instruction were you know the kind of uh, the ha- we're having to live because of the financial strains of trying to string together an income in back then the 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 nineties uh playing you know jazz music or classical music it's it's just not easy and even if you're very very good and I had teachers I I got I had private saxophone lessons private bassoon lessons uh and even if you're very very good as these the my instructors were. It's just hard to make to cobble together anything, any sort of living. I made a calculation that I wasn't going to. I just wasn't going to do it for pragmatic reasons. However, right. I continued to love the music, and when I was playing, I, you know, I, I still love orchestral music, classical music, but jazz saxophone in particular always really connected with me. I I, I was never, although I was, I, I'd call myself, you know, a, a proficient improviser uh, on the stage. Uh, if we're talking in a it, it performing a herald or a Laurent or, mm-hmm. or or you know what choose your form, I don't like. I never felt like I was very good as an improviser playing uh, jazz, but I did okay. love it. And right. and and the and the section and the section part of it, which is just like you know playing the sheet music, playing the the standards that I could do very, very well. Cause that was the same skill set as playing classical music, but actually improvising. I was just like, man, I can never fucking, I, I think I just never put the time in to get great at it. Uh, but I love it. And, and as such, I developed a, a fandom for a number of jazz saxophonists and jazz music in general, but jazz, but saxophone has always been the, the thing that connected with me the most. Uh, so there's different types of saxophone. Cause you've got all the way from, there's like a, a 10, 10 different ranges, right? Uh, there's sopranimis, blah, sopranissimo all the way to yes. subcontrabass. So, so I would there- so there are there are a ton of saxophones and uh, and there are a ton of different types. However, basically jazz music and saxophone playing in general centers on four main the Mount Rushmore of sax. Uh, if you will Mount Saxmore is a soprano saxophone, that's what Kenny G plays. Mm-hmm. Alto saxophone, That's tenor saxophone. Yeah, alto saxophone. Yes. Oh, so you played saxophone. Okay, we'll talk about that. A sa- I want to talk about that in a second. Tenor saxophone. I'm trying to think of a famous alto saxophonist who's who's mainstream, who's not a jazz musician. Uh, tenor saxophone is what, um, uh, is is what uh, 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 Clarence Clemens played, and okay. from the E Street Band. And then Barry saxophone, baritone saxophone. That's what Lisa Simpson plays. So it's so so soprano, alto, tenor, and baritone, and then bass sax sometimes. But even that's very much a fifth wheel. Now, in terms of of a school setting, alto and tenor will be the two big ones. Those are the most common saxophone. Very much. Steve, you played alto sax. I also started on alto sax, though. I eventually progressed to Barry sax. Uh, and dabbled in the other the other two on uh, Mount Saxmore. What was it about? Uh, when did you start playing alto sax? And uh, what, what what styles were you focused on? Uh, I started in fifth grade. I really, really just liked the idea that there was band. I was never really like mm. a musical kid. I'm still not like a hugely musical person, or or um, not as much as as most. But the idea, like to me, band was just something new. Like what you right. get an instrument, you go to this other class, you play. It. Well, that's so, so cool. I want to do that. And 
I loved it in fifth and sixth grade, hated it in middle school, although I was in the jazz band. Uh, and then I only did one year of marching band and concert band in high school. And that was only because my mom always said she wanted to be a marching band mom. So I gave her one year of marching band my freshman year and was like, that's it. I'm done. I can't I can't continue to force myself to play this instrument. I have no desire to play uh but yep alto fifth through ninth grade you made the right call on abandoning marching band because i was in marching band through my junior year and i hated it the whole like it sucks it was yeah. really bad <laughs> and they have to do so it. embarrassing <laughs> oh did you get a did you did you get a letter for it did you get a letter jacket no, I never got a letter jacket. My brother, my older brother, he's, he's five years older than me and is just kind of a more successful version of me in general. But he, <laughs> sp- sp- speaking of marching band, my brother was the drum major of our marching band oh. at Long Beach Poly Ooh. High for two years. And that I that was a thing. Deal. I was just like, I'm, I'm never going to do this. I don't want to do that shit. I don't want yeah. that kind of pressure. Plus, I also am just embarrassed by the concept of marching band in general. Plus, I think I knew at some level that I would not be picked. But I, but the, you know, I was like the fucking, uh, I, I, I'm cussing a lot. I'm sorry. I was no, like, it's fine. It, we figured it's the jazz sax episode. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, jazz cats are always cussing up a storm. Yeah. That's what the, that's what the genre is known for. Yeah. I was, I was honking on the alto sax in marching band and also in jazz band. Although then I, I ended up playing Barry sax my first year of jazz band. And I should have stuck with Barry my first two years of jazz band. Cause I was, I was really fucking, I, I liked Barry. And also it's like in, in sax terms, it's like being a drummer. You know how drummers are always in demand, but there's yeah. like an yeah. abundance of alto and, and mm-hmm. tenor players or, or guitarists and, and, and vocalists. You know, and and the same the same sort of thing in saxophone. I should have stuck with Barry, but my ego got, made me end up uh, being you know lead lead fucking uh, alto my my senior year. But I loved uh, like I really loved playing in the jazz band. I really loved playing in the big band. Like it was that that to me was like the most probably the most fun I had playing music. Uh, so I have two questions. First yes. is so between alto tenor. Barry, etc. Like, how do you train from one to the other? And two, why is it that if we were to say honking on the sax and jazz band, it sounds like we mean jerking off in a closet? Great questions. <laughs> uh, both both good questions. I'll answer the second one first. <laughs> I think that's because if you look it up on Urban Dictionary, that is what it means. Oh, that's um, what it, it is. is. Okay. It, yeah, it is in fact a euphemism for that very act. So right. I think yes. that's why okay. it's in your head. Sure. Uh, the so so uh, they're all very similar, and uh, once you once you learn one, you can play the others. Like I, I think alto is a good starter sax because it requires a little less uh pre- it requires a little less. It's a little more forgiving, and it also requires very, a little yes, less oxygen much. from from your lungs. Which, if you're a a growing boy or girl, you just may not have the the you won't have the oxygen output the the air output of a not oxygen output, it's fucking carbon output. You wouldn't have the carbon dioxide output. You don't breathe out oxygen. Wiger, you fucking moron. What are you? What are you if you're a plant? tree, you do. Oh, I didn't I'm know we were a, talking to a flower. I'm not a tree man. <laughs> I fucked up. Fine. Um, you heard I'm it here first. Nick Tree Man Weiger. I'm not a fucking tree man. <laughs> anyway, so, so I... 
I was uh, so your lungs aren't as aren't as powerful, so it doesn't require as much uh, as much throughput, as much you know wind output as you need for the tenor saxophone, which is a little bit more difficult at least at first. However, you start on one of those, and then you progress it, it and and it's ca- it's kind of like honestly, it's like switching from guitar to bass. It's like oh, if you okay. know one, you can figure it out. It's it's not that far off. The fingering is the same. Um, they're in different keys, so that requires you to to adjust things just a little bit mentally. But it's but that's that's easy to ends up wrap, wrapping your head around. The Barry sax requires a lot because it's just fucking huge. Like that requires a lot. You really have to be blowing on that thing to make a sound. Uh, and the soprano sax requires just a little bit more delicacy. Uh, the Kenny G sax because you can have a really you can sound like shit on soprano sax if you're not careful. You have to blow a little bit more. Uh, of a, of a you know, your embouchure, which is the way you hold your mouth, has to be a little bit more precise. Um, you have to be a little bit more controlled with your breath work. Otherwise, it's just going to sound like fucking shit. It sounds a lot like uh, a comparisons to when I did choir and when I've taken singing lessons, where once you get used to using your breath a certain way, and once you're singing like basically from your gut, it's like that idea of you know head. Um, head singing versus throat versus chest, like right. using different parts of your body to produce different sounds and uh, working out bad habits in order to make sure that you don't end up either losing breath or sounding like shit on a high note, etc. Yes, and so like if you're co- if you're if you're singing, you know, like like you're supposed to use your diaphragm when you're playing wind instruments. A lot of times, people will use their push air from their throats. That was certainly what I did at first. Uh, I was again similar to see, to singing exactly your your point there, and then vibrato uh, is differs depending on which instrument you're playing. On some of them, it involves you know a you know using the diaphragm as you would on as you would while singing. Others, it involves um, literally moving your mouth, like you're moving your like if you if you have a single reed instrument, a lot of times it's just like vibrating your mouth, changing your altering your embouchure to produce a, a vibrato effect. Um, God, this sort I haven't of remi- heard the oh. word embouchure in so <laughs> long. Oh yeah, I'll bust out an embouchure. God. <laughs> um, this <laughs> I'm reminded of. Um, I uh, I'm pretty sure it's Kristen Chenoweth who did this like uh, hour long performance. That's on. Uh, side note: the PBS app is full of like great performances and these live from Lincoln Center performances that they rotate out, where uh they they do recordings with musical theater folks or they do like. Um, m- musical theater productions that are filmed live. Anyway, so a uh, little little fun fact about me. So I'm watching this Kristen Chenoweth one, and she goes into this story about how uh, in college she's in some sort of singing class, and uh, she had to sing um, uh, from Sweeney Todd, I think, and she, whatever she was singing, her teacher stopped her and then basically the whole joke becomes her leading up to being like, and then she told me I need to sing from my pussy basically is like what she's leading up mm. to just like that That's sing good. from deep, deep, deep within your gut. And I'm trying to think right. of whom among sax players that people might know is somebody who's definitely doing that. They're singing from their genitals, meaning like they are using everything from below the waist to like pump that air out into and through their music. Yeah, who's playing sax through their pussy? <laughs> or dick. Or, or neither. Or dick. Or uh this is or a great other. question. The, <laughs> the guy 
Yeah, who's who's using their uh, who's using their perineum um, when they're when they're honking on the sax, uh, <laughs> masturbating in a closet? I, I honestly think you know Clarence Clemens. I think is a good. He plays with authority. He really yeah. fucking you know plays that thing. I also think the uh, R.I.P. Leroy Moore from Dave Matthews Band um, uh-huh. was was just like had a very very. He played Barry Sax and soprano sax primarily. He primarily was between those two poles. And uh, he he I think had a very dominant sound on uh, on baritone sax. I, I also think I think you know this this is maybe less commonly known, but you know like a, a Tower of Power, some of those funk bands that that just like had really had really really authoritative sounds from their horn sections. Right. Uh, ready for this? My yeah. high school marching band of the year I did it was Tower of Power. Wow. We did What is Hip, of course, which we all knew because of the Drew Carey show had done What yes. is Hip. Um, Miss Trouble and Soul of a Child, and I think one other one, but um there was a lot of horn work. We got a lot of a lot of horn action. I uh we I I'm trying to think of what the most embarrassing thing our marching band did. I think it was probably the Mission Impossible theme. We had a <laughs> we had a we had a Mission Impossible halftime show. When like I like the second movie was big or whatever, it was very good. <laughs> fucking embarrassing. Uh, I'm getting such cringe thinking about the high school trumpet players marching, so confident that what they're doing while playing the the Mission Impossible theme and marching band, like feeling how cool it is. I'm just cringing yeah. thinking yeah. about how those people who are like really into that dun dun. Yeah, they they definitely think that they are gonna get uh their their sacks honked off in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> we had a, I mixed I mixed up all the metaphors here. They think oh, they're gonna fine. get some. Anyway. <laughs> we uh I, I will say the the so I we uh, my school, Long Beach Poly High School, is a sports powerhouse, like on a national level. Very we had, you know, we had like a nationally ranked football team, not while I was there, but you know, like shortly after I was there. And the team was always very competitive. You know, a, 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 a lot of the sports, women's basketball, women's track, uh, where, where they're, the, the school is very, very good at. And being, you would think that you would get some of that cool, like, run runoff, like that rub would rub off on you being in the band, because I played at both football games and basketball games. Not at all. Like, it was <laughs> nope, just... it really doesn't. You No, not at all. You don't, you nope. don't all seem like you're, like, the fucking, oh, you're the, you're the, you're in the, supporting our great football team. Occasionally, maybe some some you know pity like go bands but it's it's for the most part you're just a fucking pariah polytech is big right it's a really big school because i had friends yeah i knew people in college that went there it's like three thousand people it's even bigger than my high school which is like two thousand plus yeah our graduating class was was a thousand students it's, oh, it's a very large school that that's, is a lot that's oh my god that's the most i've ever heard because when i tell people like oh we had like six or seven hundred people uh, their mouths fall their jaws drop to the floor uh right. but i had no idea a thousand so I, I guess my point is just that like with that many people it's like how, how can one even stand out at all no matter how how great of a job you are and no matter how much uh, of a athlete star you are you're right that's what that was what was going on with me socially <laughs> in high school there was just there were just too many people no one no one was popular <laughs> We were like 
second in the state. We did really good. Our our director of the year, I when I didn't come back, he didn't come back either, probably because I left. But uh, he <laughs> went on to like become a professional like guy that gets hired to do the music organization arra- arrangements for marching bands. So um, wow, nobody at our school gave a shit. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, we were just the band kids I mean I didn't even give a shit I quit my freshman year and I wouldn't get a letter jacket no well that's smart to not get a letter jacket I I lettered in varsity water polo and I didn't get a letter jacket because I was like what is the wow. point of a letter jacket like I'm gonna wear this for a year and a half and in California it's not even that cold half the time this is bullshit so I don't Nadia, know somewhere you ever a carefree teenager absolutely not I've always been <laughs> tense and anxious and I never will stop what are we gonna do with this <laughs> Nadia gets her diploma at graduation. Great. Now I've got a good frame. <laughs> Am I supposed to hold on to this? I'm going to be seeing a lot of people. I've, I've got to, like, you just should have mailed this to me. Why do I even what? have to be here? What? There's, this gown doesn't have pockets. What am I supposed to stick this between my tits? Like, and how am I, I supposed to nice hold this? nice to wear this? under a gown. <laughs> <laughs> I do regularly have uh, kind of related. I regularly have nightmares where like if I have a stress dream, like one of my most popular stress dreams in my brain is uh, for whatever reason, I didn't graduate college, which I did. And or there's like you have to take this one statistics class or something. And I'm, of course, failing. And it's like, oh, no, what am I going to do? And I have to regularly remind myself that like your college diploma is in a file folder. Like I have to like look at it and be like, there it is. Right. See, remember you, this is all a dream. You, cause I, I have woken up several times going like, how did I not graduate college? <laughs> and like two hours later, I'm like, what's that? Have you looked into the meaning of that dream? I, I haven't. I just assume it's a stress dream, but maybe it does mean yeah. something like a fear of abandonment or God knows what. Uh, or maybe, maybe you, Maybe it's bigger than that. Maybe you imagined going to college. <laughs> might might want to check that. Uh, that might want to check that filing cabinet just just to uh, make sure that's an actual all diploma. Right, hold on, not guys. Say, yeah, I don't even know where my on. diploma is. Uh, I don't have a diploma. I I don't have a diploma because I didn't graduate from college. But oh, that's right. I, we mentioned this before. Yeah, but some college has never been limiting in my line of work, fortunately, just being a some college guy. Also, you can lie. Like, they don't yeah. check. I just, yeah. You just, like, say, like, hey, I, got a, I got a degree. and just, Or just, just put that on your resume. And don't, I mean, I think it's probably a crime. It, but, they, but, you know, <laughs> they, you get, I got hired for jobs and work jobs and did a good job. And I just had to put on my resume that I had my BA when I didn't. Yeah, I, I don't yeah, really have a minor in acting, but it's on my resume. I didn't finish because I didn't. I moved to L.A. before I could take body movement, too. So I don't wow. really have a minor in acting, but it is on my resume, even my professional acting resume. Steve, oh, I've seen fuck. you perform a lot, and I've been sa- I've been thinking that your Uh-oh. body movement could use a tune up. So maybe you should have finished <laughs> finished body movement. <laughs> you, know, too. you know who else would agree with that? My body movement one teacher. Wow. <laughs> All right, so Nick, do you know yes. anything about like the history of the sax? So you know, all a, a saxophone is named after a man, yes. Aldous Sax, who invented yes. it. Yeah, and in, as in as, Paris sorry, in eighteen forty. Oh no, I was just gonna say in Paris in eighteen forty-two. Even though he's Belgian, and I just think it's very funny that he's like, "Hmm, I made this. I'll name it after me." 
That's all. Yeah, I think it's great. It's it's an alpha move. Uh, so the <laughs> I would too. Spend the, the all sex that time making a horn. Exactly. Yeah. Give it. Give it your. Give it your name. I mean, who invented the guitar? No one knows. He didn't put his fucking name on it. Anyway, so the saxophone <laughs> didn't did never really gain traction in orchestral music. Uh, because there there are a few orchestral pieces that use it. You know, the Prokofiev's Lieutenant KJ Suite is pro, is one of the more the better known ones. But for the most part, it just never it, like because of its unique sound, it never really had any sort of, of it, it never found an in into the traditional orchestra. However, it became, you know, it, it, in jazz, it became one of the 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 dominant woodwind. A, at first, it was kind of competing with clarinet, and then just, cl- you know, clarinet eventually mostly went by the wayside. You'll see some jazz clarinet and some jazz flute pop up. It's, it's almost all single reeds. The double reeds of bassoon and the oboe basically just don't make sense for jazz. But the saxophone is the dominant woodwind uh, alongside, you know, kind of the, the horns, big horn section, big three is saxophone, trumpet and trombone in, in, in jazz ensembles. And I, I kind of have, uh, you know, not to make this too luxury, but I kind of put together a handful of, of a just kind of jazz saxophone 101 chronological figures uh, and some, some of their associated uh, uh, compositions, performances that kind of may give you a sense of how, you know, jazz saxophone evolved over the course of the 20th century. I uh, love that. Please. Yeah. Yes. Please. Great. And then I, I want to say something. We have some jazz snobs who are going to jump down my throat for admitting, you know, hey, where's uh, Grover Washington? Hey, where's Joe Lovano? I, I can't get every saxophonist in this list. I'm just trying to get, to get the, the bones out. I'm just trying to get some basics out. Yes, yes, there are some major jazz saxophonists that I will be omitting. There's no Dexter Gordon. All right, I'm going to say that right now. That said, get off my back. I, I'm yeah, doing my chill best. Chill out, everybody. I can't, I can't go through 50 saxophonists in the course of one podcast recording. I'm sorry about them, Nick. I am truly yeah. sorry about them. They're in my mentions. Get out of there. You God, guy, guys, sorry. please get out of Nick's mentions. Don't be get like me mentions. in high school, okay? Don't be so tense and anxious. <laughs> Just calm the fuck down, okay? Do, get, get the Headspace app or some shit. Like, just meditate, go in a corner. Calm yourself down. Figure it's out fine. what it is about you that makes yeah. you need to at Nick because of his. Uh, because, what what's going on inside that makes you need to at somebody? Think about that. Yeah, exactly. It, it, he just because he omits Grover Washington doesn't make him any less of a fan. And I will fight any of you that says otherwise. <laughs> Sorry, just getting Me very too. emotional. <laughs> Th- thank you guys for having my back. That means of a lot. Of course. So the first major figure. Uh, I would, you know, and and people uh, people differ on on who's like kind of like the first major figure. The first major figure I'm going to cite is Coleman Hawkins, and you okay. know you, you talked about who who play, who kind of plays from their their midsection, um, who has a lot of uh, a lot of juice behind their tone. Coleman Hawkins had just had a big blasting sound, and he was he was awesome, uh, early jazz figure. Uh, I've got a little bit of. Uh, a little bit of a song, one of one of the one of Coleman Hawkins' songs. This is a little bit of Honeysuckle Rose. Mm-hmm. 
So we kind of hear there, that's kind of the, you know, that big bandy sound uh, that was of the of the era we're talking, you know, um, uh, the uh, the kind of the pre-World War II era. That was kind of how a lot of the uh, the jazz music sounded. You know, people think of of Glenn Miller, book, big band, you know, uh, uh, sing, uh, sing, sing, sing or um, uh, uh, in the mood. Uh, or uh, or Benny Goodman, some of those Count Basie, Duke Ellington. That that's those are that's kind of what that sound was. Uh, he you know he had some his sound changed a little bit as as singers do. His sound changed a little bit later in life. I had an 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 album of um, oh, I'm trying to remember the saxophone is that, you know because because jazz music a lot like uh, R and B hip hop there there will be you know like Miles Davis will have his album but then Miles Davis will guest on someone else's album there's right. a lot of that so Coleman Hawkins was guesting on someone else's album later in life and his sound was just so like it was almost it, it was almost too much it was just so, he had, he had so much juice behind it um and, as his as his sound evolved uh, yeah, so there's, Coleman, a, Col- there's that album uh, Duke Ellington meets Coleman Hawkins which is like a pretty famous recording correct something like yes, that yes yeah so so yeah, a lot of uh, you know, th- th- it's just a thing with jazz is there was just everyone ended up playing with everyone at some point. Um, uh, so so the the next figure after Coleman Hawkins is an alto sax player, uh, and this is this is who a lot of people will will say is the greatest jazz saxophonist of all time. He's he's never less th- below top three in anyone's rankings. Uh, he's just he just an incredible technical genius like twista who just is like so like has so assaulting you with a with a just wowing <laughs> you with lip speed he did the same sort of thing with saxophone that's I'm not, not saying- the pull that's not the pull i thought you were gonna pull and i lo- <laughs> and, but i love it i love it <laughs> i guess missy elliott sometimes too she just like sure. kind of you know goes goes at you with lip speed not Kendrick that I, I don't Lamar. Know- Sure. Yeah, I don't. I don't know a lot about rapper hip hop, really. I, I just know a, a handful of things, and certainly Charlie Parker is like a, a singular figure uh, at the at the very top of the list of, in, in jazz saxophone. But I'll play a little bit of this of Ornithology, which is one of his more his more famous uh, songs. So Charlie, he was he was Bird. That was his nickname. So he had a lot of Bird references in his uh, music. Uh, there, the Clint Eastwood made a film Bird. Uh, that starred uh, Forrest Whitaker uh, uh, about Charlie Parker, about his life. Famously um, got uh, addicted to heroin, died very young, died in his 30s. Um, was so uh, His body was so beaten up by that point that the, the coroner uh, at his time of death estimated that he was, uh, he was in his 60s. Oh, um, so anyway, so yeah, he completely just fucked himself up with drugs and, and died young, as, as unfortunately a lot of jazz musicians and musicians in general do. You characterized it as, I think, I think Main Street Disneyland before we were recording, the kind oh, of yeah. music you'll hear there, that, that sort of Dixie-adjacent music uh, that, was, that was dominant of, of, uh, in the pre-World War II era. Post-World War II in the 50s, uh, jazz had, went through its bebop phase, where it was just about like smaller ensembles and just playing really, really fucking fast. And intense. Um, and then at, on that that lo- on that note, here's another Charlie Parker song. This is one where that that gives a little bit more range to his sound. This is with a larger ensemble with some strings. Um, this is just friends, and this is a personal favorite of mine. Thank you. 
So yeah, it just you know a very a very elegant melodic tone, but just like just so much speed behind his his fingering. Um, uh, it's which is uh which was uh you know like like his most Im- one of his more impressive instrumental assets. That's so beautiful. Yeah, uh, Charlie Parker was fucking awesome. Yeah, uh, there was this recording. I don't know if you know about it. That's that was marketed as the greatest jazz session ever. Do you know anything about that? It was in November nineteen forty five. Which one specifically is it? So it was Charlie Parker, and then he had Miles Davis on trumpet, Curly Russell on bass, Max Roach on drums, and Dizzy Gillespie as uh, a sideman. Oh, no, he was on trumpet as well. Uh, mm-hmm. And so they had Coco, Billy's Bounce, Now's the Time. Those are some of the tracks that got recorded. Yeah, there are a lot of, you know, you'll see a lot of uh, like traveling Wilburys uh, uh, level ensembles that were as- assembled for like one record, like just like basically like everyone's a legend and they're all okay. playing together. And it happened like one time, but it, it produced this amazing album. I haven't heard that one specifically, but, you know, a couple of a, a lot of these saxophonists appeared on each other's stuff. Uh, actually, that leads me into. I, I, I'll, I'll skip over Jerry Mulligan, but Jerry Mulligan's a, a good figure um, and he, a, a good person to know. He he was a Barry Sax player uh, who was uh, uh, very prominent in the era. Th- this is a very prominent, like the 60s, the 50s and 60s, um, and uh, played a lot with this trumpeter, Chet Baker, uh, had just had a very smooth sound. Um, but then that leads me into another alto sax player, like like. Uh, uh, like Charlie Parker, Cannonball Adderley, and another ten- tenor sax player, and another just absolute like giant of jazz in, in general, and and in particular uh, sax- jazz saxophone. Cannonball Adderley is the alto sax player, and John Coltrane is the tenor sax player. Uh, these were late fifties and into the sixties, and um, they have one album together. Cannonball meets Coltrane. That's just fucking awesome. It's really, really good. I don't have any uh, any uh, tracks from that, but if you're looking for, uh, if you're if you're looking for if you're a jazz enthusiast and haven't heard that album, I think it's worth tracking down. But here's a little bit of Cannonball Adderley, uh, who you know not was was uh, kind of the the heir to Charlie Parker uh, as kind of the top alto. So just like this very smooth melodic sound, a very controlled sound, and you know certainly capable of playing with a very, very, uh, very, very fast. But at in this era, and a lot, and Miles Davis, the trumpet player, is responsible for a lot of this jazz music. Again, kind of went away from the from bebop a little bit and kind of settled in a little bit, and there was a little bit more of a, of a slow groove phase. Um, and Cannibal Adderley was was sat in a lot of that. Uh, John Coltrane. So John Coltrane is just like a huge figure. You have two John Coltrane tracks and he played both uh, tenor sax and also uh, dabbled in soprano sax. Uh, and uh, the first one I'm going to play, this one is, is, is a super fast track. In fact, this whole album, a uh, giant steps and playing the title track giant steps from, from it is, is just like a, an amazing virtuosic. Uh, it's it just virtuosic from all the performers, but here's a little bit of giant steps. <laughs> Thank you. 
so what ended up happening in this phase is that a lot of jazz music in general, but John Coltrane, Coltrane and it was, 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 so, was somewhat responsible for this, was largely responsible for, maybe largely is overstating it, was, but was certainly a part of this, was, uh, uh, it getting a little bit more atonal, a little bit less of, about just like sitting, in those conventional chord changes and a little bit more of like, like dancing outside of it. And his play is playing seems like honestly it's, it's erratic and unsettling at times, uh, but yes. it's, but it, it's an incredible <laughs> degree of skill. It, I mean, as I was listening between all these different, uh, cause they're all coming out of sort of the, the mid fifties to early sixties, those last few that yeah. you played for us. And they all sound so wildly different in part because, I mean, I think it's just so much of the personality of the player coming through, but that culture is just going so fast and does sound like it, it, it's it's the auditory equivalent of a train going off the rails. Right. And I've got one that really is that in in a couple tracks, but I, I want to play a little bit more uh, Coltrane. I'll play this other one. This is this is his version of My Favorite Things uh, with the, the you know well-known Fiddler on the Roof song. And this is him playing soprano sax. So yeah, they're just really taking this this very broad, you know, Broadway musical song and then just making it this like cool jazz thing. It, it was just it was just like yeah, it, it was a kind of experimental, weird offbeat thing that he would do. And he he has a a, a ton of range throughout his discography. Um, but uh, yeah, he he just he we John Coltrane is just fucking amazing. He's just such he was a sampling. Yeah, he was. <laughs> it was sampling. This was proto sampling. It was, it was like uh, yeah, it was <laughs> before sampling. <laughs> I know um, I've heard that version of uh I've I've heard that version of that song. Uh yeah. Multiple it's, it's, times. I mean it's used that's a, a jazz lot. staple. Yeah, yeah. That that one gets that one gets a lot of play. I think partly because it is such a well known uh a standard. Uh but yeah, so so I would you know, Charlie Parker, John Coltrane are the are the two biggest names I mentioned so far. Uh a a, a you know, someone who's a who's also it, it would be, you know, like a top would be considered in the top 20 of, of, uh, of, of jazz saxophonists is another alto player Ornette Coleman. And he had this album free jazz, which was, he had a bunch of, you know, he had, he did a lot of things, but free jazz was like maybe the most was, was just a, a, at the time it was just like so daring and so experimental. And even listening to it now, it's just kind of like, it's honestly kind of hard to listen to, but it is fascinating. I'll play a little bit of free jazz. So yeah, just abandoning any traditional musical rules at all and just sort of fucking like let's just let's just fucking Jackson Pollock this shit auditorially. Yeah, that definitely yeah. is like what I think of when I when I want to make fun of jazz. Because I do like yes, jazz. Yes, for but sure. Like, that it that is what my brain goes to. It yeah. is, is that just like noise, 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 noise on noise. And it's I'm sure what like I mean, it's like why punk was, you know, like a rebellion against like what the Eagles or something. It's like, I'm sure people who are fans of the Eagles were going and listening to the Ramones going like, what is this noise? Like, it almost feels like that. But I'm sure it was like a 
not backlash, but like, oh, well, we're, you know, because every art movement of any kind goes through kind of like uh, the opposite of what was being done because people are like, well, that's being done right now. I don't want to do that. Let me do something different. Um, You see it with, you know, art, like museum art. You see it with music. You see it with dance. You see it with everything. So it almost feels like that is a their rebellious take on like, I don't want to do like a a melodic bebop. I just want to be like, you know. Yeah, for sure. And, 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 you nailed it. I I just want to, I just want to go, but you know, that, that feeling that we all have sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever art form we're proficient in. So, so Ornette Coleman is actually a very, very good instrumentalist and, and could play the shit out of saxophone and, and played a lot of traditional stuff. Uh, but then just sort of was like, ah, I fucking had a, a, a little bit of a phase where he was he was getting really daring and experimental. There is, you know, there's a contemporary saxophonist who I actually don't really like to listen to because I just I find him I do find him just unpleasant. Uh, he, you know, he, he certainly brings his own thing to the table, but his name is John Zorn. And he just is like trying to make the he's like trying to make the weirdest, uh, most obnoxious sounds you can possibly with a horn attached to your face. Um, and, uh, and, you know, some people really like it because they're, you're looking for that. You're looking for something so unconventional offbeat, but for me, I'm just not quite, my palate is not quite refined enough to be able to appreciate him. Yeah. Um, so I got, I have one more major, you know, classic saxophone figure. This guy is, is my personal favorite saxophonist. Uh, his name is Sonny Rollins and Sonny Rollins is still alive, born in 1930, uh, still playing some, as far as I know. Uh, is a and is a, a just like a you know alongside John Coltrane was like the big tenor saxophone player of the era of the sixties uh, and um uh, you know just very very uh, honestly like I just like that he played with so much emotion and he just was so good at like uh, you know conveying emotion through his through his horn that it really uh it, it, that really connected with me uh this is one of my favorites of Sonny Rollins this is without a song and you know he had a lot of uh he he you know he covered way out west he had a he had a bunch of uh, I'm an old cow hand that's song, that song it was from his album I uh, uh, way out west that's the song he covered he 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 like would also just do some uh, did a lot of stuff that were just kind of like slower uh uh you know more uh, slower grooves uh but that really connected with you Um, uh, again on an emotional level here's a little bit of without a song So, you know, he's not even a lot of times, you know, there in particular, he's just sort of like dancing around the melody. Like that's his way of doing it. But it's just like those little variances are very, I, I, to me, really, I, I, I really connect with. Um, and, uh, and yeah, he's, uh, Sonny Rollins is, is fucking awesome and is just sort of a titan, uh, of the, uh, uh, of the jazz world as all these figures are. Um, right. It's a yeah. great, like, tightrope walk between the improvisational aspects of jazz but also maintaining the melody so that it's not just like off the rails, but it's also not a thing that you already know. Yes. Again. And and it's also, again, not that he just did that, you know, that was, he, right. he, he could do it all. And, and he certainly had one, had tracks where he really, uh, you know, would go for it. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and that can coexist within the same track, you know, I mean, within the same song, but, um, 
Uh, yeah, I, I, and, and so that kind of like bring that, that kind of takes us through, you know, the, the start of jazz, the early days of jazz through the sixties. I have two more figures that I'm going to, if I haven't overstayed my welcome, I'm going to get to that are more no, contemporary please. figures. You uh, can so, never. okay, wonderful. Uh, so these are, these We're are a couple quarantined, of, remember? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I forgot we be, don't have any other. Be like, I have 17 more hours in Nadia, but I'd be like, great. <laughs> uh, let me check my calendar. Perfect. Cool. Oh, 17 you know, podcast episodes set. <laughs> all right. We this are going to do Grover Washington. I, we are going to get Dexter Gordon in there. The, this do is it. our first series. This is what, one guest uh, for uh, so the eight fir- weeks. The first. Contemporary saxophonist I've got is Joshua Redman. Um, Joshua Redman, actually the son of another saxophone player. Uh, and, uh, and he is, uh, you know, this is, this track is from a recording in the nineties. So it kind of gives a sense of, um, of what jazz was like then, you know, you start to hear jazz was, was the dominant you know, musical form up basically up until rock and roll took over the dominant American musical form. And then, as you know, once 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 a uh, you know rock and then R and B and and all these other genres kind of became more prominent, it became this more sort of artsy uh, niche genre that would then draw on influences from the more dominant, um, uh, uh, the the more dominant forms. You know, kind of it's the it's kind of folding in and on, on itself. The thing that influenced everything else is now drawing influence from the things that it influenced. But here's a little bit of hide and seek. This is from Joshua Redman. So yeah, you hear some, some some kind of like funk influence a little bit there. Uh, I, I Joshua Redman of a younger generation than like a I think a little younger than like a Branford Marsalis. You know the Marsalis brothers might be another a, you know a well known more well known jazz figure. Uh, but so he's kind of like the the, the generation after that. Um, and uh, he is a I, I believe he was part of a a kind of resurgence of just like uh, extremely talented musicians. Uh, that were ca- that were characterized as like the young lions, um, and uh, that was something that was happening in the '90s. That name is cool as hell. Uh, Joshua Redman, the the track that you played reminds me of like when I first heard it, I went, "This sounds like the Weather Channel." Like when we would turn on the Weather Channel as a kid, and then I looked it up, and his works were featured on the Weather Channel. <laughs> oh my god! Or TV Guide Channel too. Before it was like uh, when it was just like. A scrolling thing of oh of what yeah coming up next. I think I think that was also the same kind of thing as the Weather Channel. Yeah, it's fascinating the cycle of that that music goes on where it goes from being. Uh, I, I'm trying to remember the the drummer that I saw. I saw a jazz drummer in uh, in when I was in college, and you know, like the whole audience is. Uh, 
uh, Billy Higgins, I believe it was. I think it was Billy Higgins. And the the whole audience is like people. It's like seniors. It's like people. It's like a PBS audience or like a like an opera audience. You know, it, it, it goes from being this very daring art form where people were like, you know, people were upset about, you know, Charlie Parker's music. You know, there were, there was, a, this was like, this stuff was like controversial. Mm-hmm. Uh, Follow was, the sheet music. It's so uncool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, and then nowadays it's like the safest, most tamest shit. It's so, it's you, weather you can literally play it on the weather channel. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of crazy that, I, that it's always, it it's always fun to think about like, the idea that Elvis Presley of all people like caused such an uproar by simply right. doing like a slight pelvic thrust. Yeah. Absolute I mean, it's, insanity. It, I, you know, I, I, it was, it's, it's very strange how things that were once daring become quaint over time. Um, but you know, I have one more saxophonist I want to play. This guy is, is from Los Angeles and Ooh. he's, He's uh, you know, he's uh, his name is Kamasi Washington. Oh yes, and, yes, I know Kamasi stuff. Yeah, so I he's a you know he's a more recent discovery of mine. Uh, he is fucking awesome, and he does a lot of stuff that that does to me does not feel like super safe. Does feel a little bit more daring and a little bit more contemporary. Uh, mixes a lot of different influences of different genres, and it's hard to find. He's he's one he's one of those artists where I feel like it's you just got to listen to the album to really get a sense of it. So it's hard to find an individual track that really conveys what he what he does. Uh, but I'm I'm gonna play a little bit of of one of them. This at least will give you a, a, a taste. Uh, this is uh, "Fists of Fury" by Kamasi Washington. <laughs> The yeah, and, and so like his he literally has an album called The Epic, and that kind of I think te- speaks to the scope of the kind of the music that he plays. It's just like it's so like big and and dominant and ambitious, and as such, I think he's just like a really compelling guy. Uh, if you want to like listen to one of his like fucking huge triple albums or whatever, and just sort of like bathe in it for a little bit. I've definitely done that. I've definitely put on like one of my favorite things to do if I just want to get lost in an album is put on giant headphones and plug it in and uh, just lay down and like fully experience the music. And I've done that with his albums and it's great. Oh, that's rad. Yeah. yeah, he's he's really good. And I think even if you're not a jazz enthusiast, even if you're someone who's like a lot of this is uh, not connected with you, I think he's worth checking out in more depth because I think he, he, you know his music does sound so contemporary. He's definitely uh, but, one of the more accessible modern jazz musicians, I think, compared to like if, if you were just like, hey, where do I start? Of course, you could start yeah. with stuff from the 20s, 30s, 40s, but you might listen to that and either go, this sounds normal or what's the big deal or whatever versus listening to him now as a way to kind of go, oh, okay, this is what it could sound like at this point in time. Yeah, yeah this I, was very La La Land ish to me this felt very what i would oh yeah and you know that guy fucking loves jazz he will not shut up about it in his movies damien chazelle loves loves jazz jazz it it kind of the the prominent the preeminent you know jazz people who popularize jazz it's got to be uh damien chazelle and and fred durst (laughs) yeah do you think do you think fred durst Bought, do you think Fred Durst bought a ticket to La La Land and then saw 
uh, what was his name? Sebs. Sebs was the name uh, of the jazz club. And do you think he was like, God damn it. That's what I want. That's what I've wanted this whole time. <laughs> like he just wants to be Ryan Gosling and his fucking spats just dancing around Los Angeles. Cause I think it might, that might be the thing that he wants. I would uh, love to go to the Grammys for them so they can sit me next to Damien Chazelle <laughs> and Fred Durst and hear him argue over who reinvigorated jazz music first. Get off of my podcast. <laughs> 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 oh. Um, uh, I was going to ask, have you heard this very, very recent group that I've heard uh, named The Comet is Coming, Nick? I don't know if you know them. There's a guy no. in there that's a jazz saxophonist named Shabaka Hutchings. Okay. And uh, The Comet is Coming is uh, out their albums that they put out last year. I was very, very into. So I just wanted to throw that out there since you I realize now, oh, OK, so you're into some of the contemporary stuff. But there's a lot of like funk rock, psychedelic rock influences in there. Right. That sounds awesome. I'm I'm I'd totally be into that. I'll check them out. Yeah, it's it's uh it's interesting. Just to return to Durst real quick, because of, of course we want to. I I, I it's it's <laughs> yeah, a you know, it's a thing then. that it's a thing that's like seems absurd. <laughs> but I read an article, I think it was an LA Weekly article about it. Uh and it was and, and like I was reading through it, and I was just like, I kind of gained respect for Fred Durst. Because he's not up there playing jazz and like doing a bad job of it or anything. He's just having this night. He just like welcomes you to his jazz club and then has, you know, local musicians play a jazz show. And then they get the the musicians get paid. He's a patron of the arts. Yeah, he's a patron. He's a patron of the arts. And so like I read this and it's just like, oh, that's. I kind of, I kind of like this. He's like a uh, Renaissance yeah, because- Italian. He's just paying <laughs> people for art. It's amazing. Uh, and th- that's part of why I want to go because I'm like, I want to support this kind of thing. And then when I realized yeah. how much it was, I was like, do I, do I have the money to go f- watch Fred Durst Jazz Night? Uh, did you know that at the turn of the century, the sax was mostly in vaudeville as like a novelty instrument? Like that's fascinating. That's, that's where it kind of started. It was used for chicken calls and to be like, wah, 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 like that kind of noise, like as a as the button on bits. And then brass bands in New Orleans uh, had clarinet players who were like, let's let's give this a shot. And then it kind of started to infiltrate into those other other groups. Is that um, what the axe guy or the, what the sax guy originally wanted when he created a horn? Was he like, I need something for chicken <laughs> river noises yeah. in Broadville? And and he's like, mat- <laughs> no, no, stop bed. creating beautiful music. <laughs> yeah, this isn't what it's meant for. I want to see uh, Benny Hill sc- chase around a scantily clad woman. I want to see him fast motion through doors and yeah. inexplicably end up in a door down the hallway on the other side of the building. He's watching that on his deathbed, just with a smile on his face, peacefully dazzling. Um, yeah, it, I mean, well, as it started to kind of, I think part of why uh, jazz sax in particular ended up being in the bands is because like people started using it here and there, and then the clarinet players were like, "This is too loud," and now I'm having to compete. With the jazz sax, so like, is it Sidney Bechet? That's how you say his name. Um, I believe so. Yes, it's 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 interesting to your to your point. Oh, I'm sorry, you were you were gonna finish your thought. Oh, I was just gonna say that like uh, something that I read was that he started using the soprano sax because that you could get more volume from it than the clarinet, and then basically he became 
like one of the best jazz soloists as a result because he was just like, well, fuck, if nobody's going to hear me on this instrument, I'll play this other instrument. Yeah, that's a, that's actually a great trenchant uh, point is that the, uh, this, this, the, you just can't, you can play a lot louder on a saxophone than you can on a, on other woodwinds. Like it's, it's very hard to, to stand out versus a trombone player. If you're playing clarinet or bassoon, but on saxophone, you can actually compete with them just because it's a, it's a louder instrument as more, as a more dynamic range. Based on my experience and my experience alone, um, <laughs> fifth grade through ninth grade of Novi right. middle and high school bands, the mm-hmm. clarinet players are just the quiet people. Like the people that just didn't, that just wanted to blend in and be in band, but not have anything like special about them. Those were the clarinet people. So I believe that a clarinet could be outshined by a saxophone because the clarinet players were the boring people. And, and, and that if you must see how it is everywhere. Yeah. And if you see the, you know, you kind of look at the, the numbers, just you, if you look at like a concert band, as opposed to a concert orchestra, if you just look at the numbers, like the clarinet section and the flute section have to be, have to have more people. They're just so it's, you know, you'll, you'll yeah. have like 10 clarinet players and, you know, four saxophone players, just cause that's, mm-hmm. that's what you need in order to, to, to balance out the ensemble. Yeah. As I was doing a little bit of research, uh, sounds very male dominated. And uh, so it goes, or so it seems to go with jazz musicians as well. With the sole exception I found of, I think her name is Candy Dolfer or mm, Dolfer. Yes. She's Dutch. So I'm, I'm probably fucking that name up. But, um, and she is the daughter of a, another jazz saxophonist. Um, I just, one, I wanted to give a shout out to the one woman I found um, who played with Prince and uh, Van Morrison and some others. But also, I just wanted to ask, you know, to the wider group here, like, why do you think maybe jazz compared to rock and other forms of music seems so low with let me take that back um why do we think that jazz doesn't have a huge female presence whereas other forms or other music genres do yeah i mean you will see there there are prominent jazz uh uh, women in jazz but largely vocalists you know ella fitzgerald billy holiday uh but the, but yeah, I, as far as I, I think it's just generational. I think it's just you know you're looking at this. This was a this was an art form that was at its most popular, uh, you know, in the the mid 20th century, and that yeah. was just a time when like it wouldn't a, a woman wouldn't have the agency to be like I want to be a professional saxophone player. I want to be a professional a, a trombonist, and that's that's what my career path is going to be. You know, that that's just like a, a grim reality of of the patriarchy of of the era. Yeah. Uh, and, and I would imagine that in terms of contemporary times, that it's just there aren't, I, I, I imagine they're just because there isn't, a, a, there you can't look back at like a bunch of women jazz greats, not that they don't exist, but they're, they're not in large numbers. And so that would maybe be my, my guess as to why maybe more women aren't gravitating towards that genre. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, but I, I don't know. I'm, this, this is speculation. Well, I mean, it's also that women weren't allowed to do anything. They were. For sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. These musicians are all people where when you listen to them, it sounds like that saxophone or that instrument is like a part of them. They know that instrument so well. It's like 
coming off of their fingers, coming out of their breath is music. And it's just as somebody who tried for five years and never held that saxophone, not thinking for a moment, like this is a foreign object that I have to work with or against to make noise come out of to think of how much goes into just practicing and how long it takes to be so comfortable and so good at an instrument to even consider playing jazz is crazy to me to listen to that and be like man you'd think that they just have a saxophone attached to them at all times yes that was just my thought i i and i remember hearing you know a, a, a a conductor in in a, an ensemble I played in once uh, simplified it is just like you're just you're just singing with pipes attached and and that's to your yeah. point of just like there that's the, when you when you think of it when you think of it that way when you have that sort of connection where you, the, the sort of singularity of of man uh, of person and instrument merging yeah. Uh, the, yeah that is where the that is where the the highest level per, uh, performers were were at. I I would I that actually reminds me of so a, a you know like one of the reasons I was never good enough to to really pursue this on the jazz side uh, was that you know I just didn't put the hours in and I remember I I had this teacher uh, Mike Vaccaro who was all, was an extremely good saxophonist and he was uh and 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 he was like he, he would just basically be like you know the only people who I know who ever like made a go of it just had that horn attached to their face. For like, and they had a stretch where they were playing it for eight to twelve hours a day, just playing the yeah. shit out of it constantly. And when I think of my friends who were, you know, I had, I have a friend from that, the, the, a, a good friend of mine uh, from high school who ended up being a a touring guitarist with Lauren Hill, and he was like that on guitar, of just like he never stopped playing it. Like, like anytime yeah. we were hanging out, he was just playing constantly. And I think that's just like the level of that, that's how much how many reps you need to get in order to. Uh, uh, really be at that high level i oh, oh one, one more thing about that saxophone teacher so my friend uh arthur uh shout out arthur colat uh who was who was much better than me at saxophone a tenor sax player but he had the same teacher and he said that one day uh he was playing like without like just kind of like going through emotions not playing with any any emotion and uh, uh our teacher stopped him and said come on man you're playing like you never touched a tit <laughs> <laughs> How old were you guys? Like 15. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a bird. Yeah. Man, he, he thinks that a lot of 15-year-old boys in saxophone lessons have touched a lot of tits. Look, this was a cool old jazz guy. I mean, it probably <laughs> came up in a different time. Or act or just had confidence. <laughs> That's true. That's which yeah. is really all it takes. Which is really all it is. I feel kind of like a dummy once I said uh, that there weren't that many, you know, women jazz saxophonists because we already mentioned one and one of my favorites, which is Lisa Simpson. Of course, yes, yes, Lisa, Lisa and, and Bleeding Gums Murphy. Yes, mm-hmm. and I and I just started thinking about because uh, uh, because I was looking up some of my. Uh, you know, other research on jazz sax and thinking about like, I was trying to recall all the specifics of that one episode where Homer then has to get her. It's a new read piece. It's a new mouthpiece. It's um, something's fucked up in her sax. It's it's a read. They're specifically yes. looking for a read. Yes. And then, it, and that's actually the, the saxophone writing is, I wonder if, uh, I, I wonder if, uh, uh, you know, 
I, I wonder if some one of the writers in the room was a sack was a, a woodwind player uh, because yeah that was like like getting the wrong read and then not being able to play on it what is a very real thing and then so when, many when, reads yeah and then bot and then then Skinner being so condescending being like like she's like it wasn't me it was the read she's like, yes sweetie it was the read you know it's just like <laughs> ah that's such a but it is the fucking read like that does that that can absolutely affect your how you play you have to play on the one that you're used to. And if That's I'm so gonna true. if I'm gonna recite or you know off of memory other female jazz saxophonists, there's not just Lisa. There's her rival Allison, who competes with her yeah. for chair yeah. by Renona Ryder. Yeah. yeah, when they both get into that uh, the, the sort of a soloist competition for about twenty seconds there, and then Lisa pass out. So just, just wanted to bring up head, the right. <laughs> So off the Two top of, of your them head, when it comes, yes. there are yeah, there are three um, female jazz saxophone players. Two of them are animated children on the same show. Yes, yes. exactly. Yes, so that shows you just how far we've come. Uh, well, one of them was Winona Ryder. <laughs> uh, by the, the way, Arnie Smith. <laughs> I, I looked up. I looked up Lisa Simpson's saxophone double, like who plays the sax, and I, the name's Terry Harrington. And for a second, I was like, "Oh, maybe she, maybe that's a woman." But uh, no, it's very much an an old white dude. Uh, but he was, uh, yeah. They, they have they have one guy who who plays all of uh, Lisa's sax work on the show. Oh wow! I wonder how much he makes. I don't know. I mean, like if he, if he's in the the theme, you know, those oh, things yeah. are in syndication endlessly. So yeah, and and doing, her bit right. Her bit in the theme changes up, especially in those earlier episodes. It does change up a little bit here and there, right? Like he does. Yeah, she plays. Yeah, she plays like a different little solo, and I, I think basically pretty much every episode. And so, yeah, yeah, he's he's probably made. He's probably making bank. It's probably one of the more profitable gigs he's ever had. Do you think her teacher, Lisa's uh, music teacher, is a guy? Mr. Largo. Who- Yes. Do you think when he was younger, he was a guy who was like, I'm going to make it. I'm going to be uh, I'm going to get one of those chair spots in the San Francisco Symphony. And then he just completely failed at that. Or do you think he was just like, yeah, I'll do this? Uh, I think, yeah. I mean, he seems like a man with some bitterness about his <laughs> career not quite going the way he liked. And I do. I will say we had a you know, one of our one of our uh, we, we would both bo- we had excellent of music teachers at my school is a very good mu- music school, but one of them was someone who was a career like I'm going to school to be an orchestra conductor so I can teach high school orchestra. There was that was one of them, and the other one was very much a I was trying to be a professional, you know, jazz marimba player, and that was just like really hard to make a li- scrape together a living. So I got my teaching certification, and now I teach. I, I think it's it's probably the same thing you see with. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of people who teach in the arts in general, just some people were planning on doing that the whole way. Other people, it's a backup plan. Yeah. Do we think, I think like, he, oh, God, sorry. Well, I think he his anger and attitude, I think he resents himself because I think he dreamed all those big dreams. He never failed, but he never tried. And that's where his bitterness comes from. Mm, yeah, that, that very well point. could be it. Um. Uh. So the Mr. Thing Largo's with- an asshole. <laughs> At least in my fan fiction, he's a fucking dick. He never gets along with the other teachers. Like at least Mrs. Crowbapple's cracking jokes. Like she's trying to stay yeah. sane through all of this. He's just a jerk. Nick Weiger, thanks so much for joining us today. Anything you want to plug? 
Uh, yeah, my podcast about chain restaurants, Doughboys, and my po- with uh, with Mike Mitchell, and my podcast about bad video games. How did this get played? With Heather Ann Campbell and Matt Apodaca. Uh, How did this get played? Comes out on Mondays, and Doughboys comes out on Thursdays. Check those out if you want to hear more of me talking and not just bloviating about the saxophone. All right, and we come out on Wednesdays. So, listeners, you've only got two more days to fill. Yeah, figure out figure out your Tuesday Friday podcast. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, tell everyone you know every way you know how. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review, and be sure to go back and listen to our older episodes if you missed them. We talked about some weird stuff. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at Why Do You Know That Pod or on Twitter at Why Do You Know Pod. They're different. And if you've got questions, comments, concerns, whatever, be sure to email us at Why Do You Know That Pod at gmail.com. Let's do this again sometime. Uh-huh.